five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. This week, we have our final special recording from the recent Canadian Aeronautics and Space Institute Astro 2019 Conference in Laval, Quebec. In this podcast, you'll hear from Dr. Sarah Gallagher, who splits her time between Western University, where she's a professor studying black holes, and the Canadian Space Agency, where she became the first science advisor to the president. In this after-dinner talk at the conference, Dr. Gallagher spoke on the topic of leveraging science for innovation. Today's recording includes both her talk and an interesting Q&A session moderated by CASI Executive Director Jeff Languiduck. You can follow Dr. Gallagher on Twitter at SCGQuasar. Listen in. Thank you. I was assured there was an advancer here. <laughs> ah, if you're a little taller, it's easier to see, apparently. So, bonsoir tout le monde. Je suis vraiment contente d'être ici um, ce soir pour vous parler. And it's my very great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to speak to this group. Um, I'm, I dashed over here from downtown Montreal from the astronomy meeting. There's 300 astronomers downtown. So if you're feeling brave, you can go check it out. Um, they're, they're generally quite a friendly crowd. Um, but one of the things they're doing right now is that they're such a big crowd because this year is a long-range planning year when the community gets together and comes together with plans for the next decade about, um, about what they want to do and what their big science goals are moving forward. So it's quite a lot um, going on. That's why it's so busy. Um, so tonight I'm here to talk to you about leveraging science for innovation. Um, and so first what I'm going to do is just remind you um, that part of the mandate of the Canadian Space Agency is to advance the knowledge of space through science as well as to ensure that space science and technology provide social and economic benefits for Canadians. Now those might seem to be two separate objectives, two separate things um, that are part of the mandate, but I'm here to argue tonight um, and to give you some examples of how I think that they're actually, they dovetail quite naturally. Um, and in fact, we should be doing more to make sure that we are um, moving those two goals together in order to both do more science and also generate greater benefits for Canadians. So this is uh, sort of the landscape in which the Canadian Space Agency is operating. So they're as sort of a hub between, um, between different partners. So there's the obvious partner of industry, which is well represented by um, most of the people here tonight. Um, there are universities where a lot of academic researchers are, um, both in engineering and science. Um, other government departments who are partners uh, in endeavors, such as the um, RCM um, 
satellites, which have just been launched so fantastically successfully, as well as international space agencies. And the Canadian Space Agency is really the hub um, that all of those different partners um, connect with at some point. Um, and of course, there's also partner, those partners also connect with each other. Um, but I think one of the things that is something that we could, as a, a community, strive for is to actually make those ties between the partners much stronger. Um, in particular, the communities in which we have scientists, um, I think, are often kind of off on the side and are not necessarily as integrated into the other activities that are happening with industry and also other government departments. <clears throat> So I am regularly asked, what does a science advisor do anyway? So I thought I would uh, give you a little bit of an explanation. This is part of the mandate letter, um, which uh, Sylvain um, wrote, which is sort of my marching orders. Um, and so I'll just read what it says. So the science advisor to the president is, act, is asked to act as a neutral sounding board for senior officials and decision makers when debating science-related issues, to make recommendations and provide strategic advice on science and science policy issues as they relate to space and to act as a link between the CSA and external stakeholders. The way uh, my position works is that I am still a university professor at Western and half of my salary is being covered by the Canadian Space Agency. So over the past year I've been based in London, Ontario. Um, I'm still teaching um, undergraduates, first year physics, um, and then I'm spending approximately a week a month at the Space Agency as well as calling in regularly for video conferences. So that's how I've been managing over the past year. Um, unfortunately, it seems like I sort of have two jobs that are about 75% of the time, um, but it's been a really fantastic experience. Um, and this is, if from this mandate letter, I really take that, that, that to heart to act as a link between the CSA and external stakeholders, which includes the science community, as well as industry, other government departments, um, as well as international space agencies. So in terms of where my, um, this is my, uh, this is my, uh, my test case for you to see if you're, um, I can ask you at the end. So in my bio introduction, <laughs> You heard that I've used data from approximately 10 space observatories. Here are seven of them. They are x-ray observatories. Um, and the, I have a prize for the first person who can name all of them. Um, so the first one, which probably I hope most of you recognize, does anybody know what it is, number one? Yes, excellent, I heard the Chandra X-ray Observatory. Um, so that's where I actually started my career. I was on the instrument team for the main instrument for Chandra when I did my PhD. Um, and then for my first postdoc, I was on another instrument team for Chandra. So that's sort of, um, I consider myself kind of a Chandra baby because um, it launched when I was in graduate school and that was kind of the start of my career. Um, so my background is in space astronomy. And these are some of the um, some of the X-ray observatories that I've worked with, and so that's um, that's my experience is in that regime, starting with high energy telescopes, and then also there's a couple others I've picked up along the way, but these are really sort of my favorite. So um, you can uh, you can send me your answers if anybody can identify all of these space observatories. <clears throat> So in terms of the um, the CSA organization chart, am I the first person to show a CSA org chart? Yes? Really? 
Oh, I'm disappointed in. I, I expected with all the CSA talks that somebody else would show an org chart. Um, so, uh, but I just wanted to show where I fit. So um, I'm the science advisor to the president. Um, and then, and then one of the things that I really like about my job is that I'm I get to um, talk to Sylvain. Um, and then I'm also um, connected with the chief science advisor, Mona Neymar, and also her team of science advisors um, for the other government departments. So that gives me actually a really fantastic and interesting um, view into the science activities that are happening in other government departments. Um, as part of my, one of the main jobs I've had to, to get started is to interact with the seven science advisory committees um, that advise the different programmed departments of CSA, um, space utilization, space exploration, and space science and technology. Um, in fact, tomorrow I have to jet from the uh, Canadian Astronomical Society meeting um, back to CSA to meet with the Solar Terrestrial Advisory Committee. And this has been one of the parts of my job that I really like the most, is to interact with all the different science communities and find out about the exciting things that they are working on um, and the challenges that they also have. But really, the fantastic landscape of science, space science that's happening in Canada has been really, um, really exciting. <clears throat> So when we talk about how science um, happens in a mission, um, I, I put this diagram because I think often we think of the interaction of a science mission as only being building hardware, building a hardware component for a mission. But there's actually more, more ways that we can interact, that scientists can interact with a space mission. So there's the part in which you're contributing, um, you know, a hardware contribution. It can also be software, calibration, or complementary data, um, in which case there is data that's being contributed to to the science team, which enables the science goals to be reached of a science mission. There's also the level of science activity in which you have a science where you can act on the science definition group. And in this case, that means building the science case to determine the design specifications and sell the project. And this is the sort of activity that really needs to happen before somebody starts designing everything when you have a science mission. You need to decide what your science questions are and what you and those science questions and, and what is required to achieve those science questions then, then determine the design specifications. So having that science input at the very beginning of a mission is really essential in order for it to be successful. Um, and then there is science activity which happens on the other end where you don't interact with the planning and the execution of the mission itself, but you take advantage of the data that, um, that comes out on the other end in order to achieve your science goals. And in this case, being able to access that data, the right kind of data that's in science-ready state is really what's key in order for that to happen. So these are the three different levels in which you can have science mission engagement. Um, and I think it's useful to think that, particularly in the landscape in which there's lots of new different kinds of companies that are coming into the space landscape, they can access um, science basically on these three different levels. It doesn't always have to be a hardware contribution. Um, so this is something that I, 
When this came out, so this is the Ipsos polling numbers that came out in the summer of 2018 as part of the Don't Let Go Canada results. And I looked at these different numbers, and um, I thought these results were really telling. And, and I took them to heart, and that's part of what I was thinking about when I structured this talk. So 80% of Canadians are proud of our activities in space. That's fantastic, right? We are doing really fantastic things in space, and when Canadians know about them, they're really proud of them. 78% um, of people say space contributes to our knowledge, economy, innovation, and economic competitiveness. But then we also have 53% of Canadians say we should spend less in the space sector because we have other priorities. And for me as a scientist, I found this result actually really troubling because it suggests that we have to make a choice between investing in space, in the space sector, and the other things that you know we care about in terms of filling in the potholes and keeping the lights on and all of that sort of thing. And I think this is a, really a false choice, and that's part of what I was thinking about when I was thinking about this talk, and also thinking about leveraging science for innovation, because this this is not a choice that we should have to make. And and so let me let me support that with um, with with my next slides. So when I think of space, I think we can approach it in these three different regimes, where we can think of space as being infrastructure that we require for our modern society. And that is a diagram. Um, I hope you recognize that satellite. Yeah? Yes? Right? Yeah. On the left? Yay? RCM? OK. Just checking. Um, so and in terms of space's infrastructure, we have communications, GPS, weather, fire tracking, those sorts of things. And it's really the underpin and underpinning of a lot of our modern society. Um, in the middle, we have space as a platform. So the International Space Station up there um, is obviously um, where a lot of science activities are happening. You also just have satellites where they're a platform for science instruments um, that allow us to observe Earth um, and also study atmospheric sciences. And then we also have, on the rightmost, we have space as a target where we're looking at things out in space. So astronomy is a natural um, area for that, as well as planetary science um, and also space physics. And, um, and so as we go from the left to the right, um, we are moving from a regime where our infrastructure has to be absolutely rock solid. We need to know that when the ambulance goes to somebody's house, it's not going to get lost because that G GPS network is solid. And, that, and within that regime, that infrastructure has to be rock, rock solid. And so we have much less opportunity, um, much less tolerance for risk. But as we move to the right, you know, if we're in the regime of astronomy, um, we, uh, I mean, if something doesn't work, it, I mean, it's a bummer and it's expensive, but nobody's going to die. And so in that sense, I think that's the regime where we also, we have a lot of opportunity for innovation because we have more, a larger risk tolerance in terms of what we're able to, um, what we're able to tolerate, for example, you know, new detectors and that sort of thing. And this is also what we're talking about in terms of really deep innovation where we can be pushing the technology really, really hard. And that's what science does. It pushes the technology really hard because scientists are really ambitious. And in general, we also we don't get that many missions. And so when we finally get one, we want it to be a 1,000 times better than the one that came before um, in order to basically make it worthwhile in order to push um, 
because we just don't get that many missions. So I have some examples. I asked um, some people that I know um, for examples for development of technology for science um, that then had downstream applications that were really, um, really profound. And so um, the, this is an example from ABB. Thank you to Fred um, Gremont for giving this to me. So the Moppet satellite does measurements of pollution in the troposphere, um, and there is the um, this is the screenshot of their website right there. So um, the contribution from ABB to Moppet was a high-precision infrared radiometric calibration reference. So this was technology that was developed for a science mission um, in which they were able to then do a technology demonstration. And as a consequence, they got contracts for 15 calibration sources to equip all future European weather satellites from 2020 to beyond 2035. So this is an example of leveraging science in order to develop technology and demonstrate it and then take that technology demonstration and move it um, and, and reap those commercial benefits. Here's another example from ABB of the um, atmospheric chemistry experiment on SISAT. This is still the highest spectral resolution spectrometer, which is currently operating in space. And as a consequence of that successful experiment, ABB got a, contact, a contract to supply Japanese GOSAT-1 and GOSAT-2 satellites with spectrometers. So this is an example where we start with a science goal that has a demand for technology that's developed for that science mission and then leveraged for um, subsequent commercial benefit. Um, I have a more subtle example from uh, Neil Rollins from Honeywell, where there's more of an interplay between commercial development and scientific development. <clears throat> And so this, uh, these slides are a little busy because there's a lot going on as far as these go. But basically, there is a combination of development of UV cameras for science missions um, and also commercial star trackers. And that technology was then um, leveraged into the CSA SISAT. Um, and then on the next slide, that, um, that the star tracking technology was then used um, and eventually was one of the reasons that Honeywell was able to win the contract for the James Webb Space Telescope. The James Webb Space Telescope, there are two Canadian instruments on the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, so the Star Tracker is one of them, and NEARUS, which is uh, an instrument that's being developed by University of Montreal, is the other instrument. And this is um, the James Webb Space Telescope is a fantastic example of leveraging Canadian industrial expertise um, and basically getting a really fantastic return. So for approximately 1% of the JWST budget, that was the Canadian contribution to JWST, we have 5% of the science data, which is coming back to the Canadian community. We have two positions on the advisory committee for the James Webb Space Telescope. And we also have um, equal billing on the mission patch. So that is really a fantastic scientific return, um, which was enabled by many, many years of investment by um, Canadian industry and the Canadian Space Agency to develop the technology that then we were able to leverage into this science return on this mission. So another um, 
example that I want to share. So those were specifically about leveraging science to for technology development. But I also want to talk about another example, which is leveraging scientists for research and development. And there is a company in Vancouver called 3V Geomatics. Um, and I'd like to thank Parwan Kuman and Andy Pond for this information. Um, they currently, they use synthetic aperture radar data um, in order to map different regimes for uh, different regions, for example, mines and, um, and different areas like that for environmental studies. Three members of their research and development team were trained in astronomy graduate programs. Um, and so what this company has realized is that the scientific training um, that this group of researchers got was actually incredibly, incredibly powerful for their research and development. So, um, so this just lists some of the things. These are, um, these are people who are, have very sophisticated um, computer um, computer coding skills, but then they also have a suite of additional skills from their astronomy graduate program, which would be similar to science graduate of other science students from other graduate programs. So for example, um, the technical analysis, the communication skills in terms of technical report writing and presentation skills, um, mentoring and supervising um, students, project management, um, and all of those different skills are direct consequence of the kind of training that any science PhD student would get. And this particular company has really leveraged that training in order to have a huge asset into their um, research and development. And on the next slide, I have some examples of the kind of um, research and development that they're doing. These are some slides from a specific project that was supported by the Canadian Space Agency. Um, and according to their chief technical officer, the examples of value that are added by scientists are developing new product lines, so they're really doing research into new types of applications that they can sell to their customers. Um, they've also, because of the sort of big picture training that a lot of scientists get in terms of stepping back, looking at the big picture, um, they've been able to automate and speed up their product lines. And then also, because of their experience with leading research programs and writing proposals and writing a giant thesis, um, they've also been leading CSA-sponsored R&D projects. So these scientists are also a really valuable component that's recognized by this company to their teams because of their diverse types of experience, their problem solving, as well as the technical um, skills that they bring to the table. Um, so now I want to tell you a story. This is outside of the space agency. And I think this really is an example of the real promise of what science can do in terms of driving innovation. So there's a company in Vancouver which is called Dynamic Structures. Um, it's a large engineering company. And they built the dome to the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope. It was built in the 1970s. Um, the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope is on Mauna Kea. And on the left um, is a picture of it. Um, Mauna Kea is the Big, uh, the tall mountain on the Big Island, and you can see the dome right there. Um, and after that, that was the first telescope dome that they built. Subsequently, they were able to build um, about approximately half of the large telescope domes in the world. Now, there are not that many large telescopes. 
Um, and the, one of the largest, in fact, is the 30-meter telescope. It does not exist yet. That's an artist's picture. But the, but the technology development that they built up over decades, working on larger and larger telescopes, enabled them to win the contract for the 30-meter telescope. And that is also that is the Canadian contribution to that um, multi-billion-dollar project. <laughs> Um, that enables us to have a partnership stake at the table. Um, so they leveraged their legacy of engineering excellence in order to um, really build this new cutting edge um, facility. And just to give you an idea of the engineering demands of the 30 meter telescope, so a 30 meter mirror is really, really big. And you can see that they have a novel design. It's called, it's sort of like an eyeball. It's called a culotte design. Um, but what also makes it so hard is that inside of that dome, they have an unbelievably exacting vibration requirement because they have extremely delicate optics that, um, that basically need to take exquisite pictures. Um, and so this huge structure needs to have very, very, very little vibration. And so it's very demanding from an engineering point of view. Um, but they've been able to develop um, this expertise, which started from their contributions in the 1970s. And so what they've leveraged this in, and this is why I'm ending um, with this particular story, is because dynamic structures, you can see the image they have up there that looks like an image of a, of a telescope mirror with a dome on top of it. But they have leveraged that engineering expertise into um, building amusement park rides. Um, they built the Harry Potter ride um, in Disney World um, as an example of one of the ones that they've done. So dynamic attractions, both of them are owned by Empire Industries. And they are, um, they are both doing large engineering projects. But it was really the expertise that they developed and honed through the telescopes that then they leveraged into this entirely separate business, um, which has been wildly successful. And one of the things that I think really brings home to me about the potential value also for incorporating science into your technology development in terms of a motivator and a driver is something that Mike Bedick, uh, Gettig, who's the VP and technical director for the 30-meter telescope, told me. Um, he said, all the engineers want to work on the telescopes. And so I said, why? And he said, because they're really hard. So they're really hard, and they're also exciting. And this is this grand endeavor. This is really hard to build a 30-meter telescope. All the technology that needs to happen is incredibly, incredibly exacting. And he is able to get fantastic people because they want to work on these projects, because they're hard, and they consider them valuable. And I think that's another aspect in which science really offers your, um, your communities, is that these projects are hard, and they're also really meaningful. And so you can use them to really attract fantastic people. So um, I would just want to return again to, um, to this um, to these polling results, because I feel like part of this last um, uh, point right here, that 53% of people say we should spend less in the space sector because we have other priorities, is really um, something that we as a community who cares about the space sector, this is our job to fix this. Because this, is, this should not be an either or proposition. We should not be 
you know, picking between, you know, taking care of our people and, you know, doing cool things in space. Because our investments, which can be driven by science and in innovation, are going to help us help us have a better community. In it might not be for a while. It might take uh, a while for these, um, for these new developments to propagate downstream. Um, but it's really our job to share um, this connection between the work that we're doing now that's pushing the boundaries and, um, of tech development um, and, and what we can expect that to, to give us back. Um, and it might be, again, in 10 or 20 years, but we've really had some fantastic results coming back from the innovation that was driven by science, and that's something that we can expect also moving forward. So I'd just like to, um, to just sort of summarize um, my feelings is that the science, I really feel, truly pushes the technology really hard because the scientific demands are really, really exacting. And that's something that we should embrace because it pushes us to be really, um, really excellent and also to solve problems that, um, that we haven't had to solve before. Um, it can be quite inspiring for teams of people to work on these exciting projects and these hard problems. And then we also are, um, are creating value in terms of the new, um, the new developments that we have going forward. So I've just highlighted a few stories because those were stories of, those were people that I knew from my experience in astronomy, but please share them. I would love to hear more about the other things that you have done that have been enabled by scientific activities so I can also um, share them further. So thank you much. Thank you so much for your attention. A little bit, yes. <laughs> so um, impromptuly, would you be willing to take a few questions? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to take questions. Excellent. Um, thank you, Sarah. Um, you can ask me about black holes, too. <laughs> um, the, uh, actually, why don't you stand here? Sarah, okay. And I'll just share your microphone a little bit, because you have the, the lapel mic. Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you for sharing your enthusiasm and, and making science fun for me, anyhow. I, you know, sometimes it seems intimidating. But when you personalize it and you bring it to us from your perspective, uh, it makes a difference. And astronomy also seems kind of distant, forgive me, but it's, it is sometimes, but it, it's not really. And James Webb, it's on the horizon, it's coming soon. It's going to be very exciting. It's maybe the next big, big thing in Canada. So that's exciting. So um, it's kind of bright. Uh, David, can you drop the lights a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, um, I have a couple of questions, but does anybody have any questions for Sarah? I don't, I can't imagine that nobody does. So let's help us out here. Who's got some questions? I think they're all asleep. It's getting late. Um, so I have a question. Um, in, in terms of, of the... Um, the role that astronomy plays in the Canadian Space Agency, which is your background. Um, how do you see your science advisory capacity uh, drawing on your astronomy background compared with some of the other activities that the agency may be better known for? So 
what I would say is that I have been really careful to be, I'm the science advisor to all the space sciences, not just to astronomy. Right. So that is something that I've been really careful to um, pay attention to all of the different science communities. So I'm meeting with all the science advisory committees and um, hearing about the activities that they're working on and what they're excited about. Um, so that's something that's quite important. I think there is an aspect of being a scientist that um, of my experience, it's really similar to lots of scientists. So um, I teach undergraduates. I, um, I have to deal with deans in my university. And I apply for grants from NSERC. And so there's a lot of aspects of my experience as a scientist who's in, at a university in Canada that are really universal to other sciences. So I think that that is quite useful. Um, the astronomy community is different from other space science communities because it's quite large. It's the largest space science community. It's also very highly organized. So that's um, an aspect that's different. But I think that some of that experience that I have with a more organized space science community um, that has had really fantastic results in terms of getting Canada to invest in things like the 30 meter telescope and the James Webb Space Telescope, I think some of that experience I can bring to the other space science communities so that they can take advantage of, uh, of the hard lessons that the astronomy community has learned. So if anything comes to anybody else, just raise your hand. Meanwhile, I'm kind of riveted by the numbers that you brought up um, about how high the percentages of Canadians responding to the Ipsos poll who felt that the space sector is an important part of, of, of the Canadian fabric, but that there were more things that we could spend our money on than that. And, and you're feeling that, well, maybe it shouldn't be a choice. How can, but how can we get around the fact that there's only 100 cents in a dollar and, and there's the, the pull and tug for how that money gets spent for the Canadian taxpayers' contribution? Do you think that, that we could, as a society can do more to add to add more weight to the argument from the space community about what proportion of the total dollar expenditure is given to space? Is that what the message that you're giving us? Well, so I think that there's a lot of different, uh, different ways to sort of unpack that. So first of all, the amount of money, for example, that's going to the Canadian Space Agency is, is quite small compared to a lot of um, you know, other buckets that money is being put into. And I think that most people have no idea about how that compares to other sources, you know, other, the cost of other sorts of activities. So that's just uh, something that I think people are not aware of. Um, and then I think it is our job. It's our job as scientists and people in industry to, to make the argument, to make the argument to, and I think we need to make both arguments. The, the argument there's that the science is worthwhile and that we get a lot out of it. I mean, I never have to talk to a third grader and tell them why I study black holes. They totally get it. And, um, and, but there are, we have lots of constituents, and we have to make the argument both ways, that what we do, that they will get a good return on the investment, but then also that what we're doing is inherently worthwhile, and that you know, the science is valuable in and of itself, as well as it has these other downstream benefits. And we need to make both arguments and make them passionately. And I, and I feel that the science community, it's our job to talk about the science. And then I think it's the job of the industrial community also to talk 
talk about um, about more about the downstream benefits um, because you can't. I mean, I can talk to, about black holes until the cows go home. Um, I won't. Don't worry. I won't make you. Do, I won't make you listen. Um, but but the scientific community can be the most enthusiastic and passionate. Um, advocates for that sort of activity, um, and and there's traction for that. I mean, I so I, I'm going to talk about black holes anyway. But so the most recent Event Horizon Telescope image. How many people heard about that in the news? That's it. It was all over the news. I was contacted by five different people for interviews about it. I don't even work on that project. So, um, so th that's real, that's enthusiasm. I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of interest in that and I don't think, I think we undersell, um, undersell the Canadian public when we feel like we can't make that argument too. I mean, we should make both, but we can make the, the scientific argument as well. well. What I hear you saying dovetails very nicely with, with the message that Sylvain brought, I think, as well in his keynote um, yesterday, which was that um, we as a community, as a space community, uh, have succeeded to, um, to get some traction with the Treasury Board and with Cabinet, to have a vote of confidence with their feet, with money, with taxpayers' resources, in the Canadian space sector, and now it's upon us to show that that investment was worthwhile. And what you're saying also is that the science involved that will flow from some of that investment also is tremendously worthwhile and will make, be a contributor to proving the worth or the value of that decision and how it's worked out. And I think Phil has a question. I'll, I'll, oh, the microphone on. So, uh, thanks for your talk, Sarah. We, we love uh, listening to this, and I think it's a really important message. But let's face it, you're talking to a room of engineers, right? Most of us here are engineers. Um, I think that's pretty safe to say. And you came from a conference earlier today of mostly scientists, yeah. right? And I think the message that you have here is one that we hear. I mean, it's certainly one that we hear in the academic community that we need to do a better job of linking the science to the work that we do in space uh, to, to provide more inspiration to what we're doing and provide the actual driver to what we're doing. But how do we cross that gap? I mean, I, this, uh, you, my wife's a scientist, my wife's a physicist, and we always laugh about how scientists and engineers never really work together, right? And I think it's safe to say that there aren't a whole lot of scientists in this room. There's probably not a lot of engineers at the conference you came from. And I doubt that there's many people from the Canadian Space Agency at the conference that you came from also. That's they're all, all here. here. Because yeah, they're all here, perfect. right? Yep. So how do, we, how do we cross that divide? How do we find ways for engineers and scientists to coexist even in the same conference? Like, why, why aren't there astronomers here? And why aren't there engineers at your conference, and what do we do to fix that? I think that that's an excellent point, and I would also say that is, an, is something that I experience in Canada more than when I go to astronomy conferences in the States, for example. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot more mixing between the two communities, and um, I can talk for a long time about why I think that is, but I think it is largely cultural, and I think that's also, um, so I'll tell you an experience that I had. I'm, uh, I was in charge of the undergraduate program in my university, for physics and astronomy. And I was trying to help put together a job fair for our physics students. And I reached out to local companies in London and I said, we're having a job fair. Would you like to come and meet the students and tell them about your company? And at least one of them said, oh, no, 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 we only hire engineers. 
And so I, I just, that blew my mind because why? Do you know what our physics students can do? Uh, they can program, they can write, they can think, they can problem solve, they can build stuff in the lab. So that it was a very narrow-minded view of what the skill, you know, of what it was all about the credential. And so I think part of that is I would say oh, be open-minded about who, who you can bring to your team. And I think you'll find, like as with 3V Geomatics, they have been thrilled to bits with all their astrophysicists. There's, a, there's a, several companies I've heard about um, in Alberta that have hired physicists and astronomers, and they've realized that their sophistication and image analysis and, um, and um, computing has been wildly um, productive in terms of streamlining their processes and really allowing them to do much more sophisticated work. So I would, I would you know, charge you, please be open-minded in and, and terms of expertise and, to, and, and who you're willing to hire. Um, so that, that would be one thing. And, and I think also, you know, scientists, I feel like I speak, you know, fluent efficient engineer, um, and, uh, and that I would agree that scientists can also be obnoxious, too, um, in terms of, you know, um, talking about engineers. So I, th I think it's a charge for both fields. But I would say I think we want both, both groups of people on our teams so that, you know, we'll, we'll, do better, we'll do better work and more innovative work, too, when you have that different mindset. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca, or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca, where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space, and if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.